This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Oh, here we go, boys. Go. Ooh, I love that sound. This is a good one. Welcome to the Full Scale Outdoors Podcast. This is the Waterfowl Wednesday edition on January 18th, 2023. I'm your host, Nick Johnson, and this podcast is brought to you by Boss Ammunition. If you have not tried Boss yet, I highly recommend you check out their wide variety of premium pellet alloy ammunitions that is going to help you kill more birds, cripple less birds, be more successful in all of your bird hunting ventures. Um, I was gone last week. I was actually just spent 10 days in Panama. And yes, I was on the hunt in Panama for some good bird watching. I'm trying to find some puddle ducks. I've never been to Panama in January. If you don't know, my wife is from Panama. And so this is the third time that I've been down there to visit family and hang out and just gorge myself on delicious Panamanian food. But in the meantime, I'm always on the lookout for cool, unique, waterfowl species that I might not see in the United States. This time was my first time there in January. My other two times were in May and April. So in Panama, this is what they call the summertime. But for me, this is what I was thinking would be the best opportunity that I might have to find a like an American species of duck, like an American widgeon or a blue-winged teal or a lesser scalp, something like that that would... Um, that I've just never seen down there, and I think would be really cool to see a duck species from the United States that far south. 
Um, what I have seen down there a lot in the previous times I've been there is black-bellied whistling ducks. As a matter of fact, black-bellied whistling ducks and fulvous whistling ducks are the only two waterfowl species I've ever seen down there on my first two trips. So this being January, I was thinking, man, I, I, I really put some effort in, I put some miles in, and I wanted to find an American species of ducks, and I'll cut to the chase. I was not successful. Um, my best chance of seeing um, any teal or widgeon, or actually there's shovelers that end up down there too, was I found myself at this Airbnb on the ocean that was just beautiful. Raquel found it for us, and I was getting on eBird, and I typed in blue-winged teal on the species map, and when you look at reports, you see all these blue dots, and that's just reports where people have seen blue-winged teal, if you're searching for blue-winged teal. So I'm searching for blue-winged teal. The map is dotted with blue dots, which are historical reports, but if you see a red dot, a red dot is a report that has taken place in the last 30 days, so lo and behold, there's a red dot, and it's only about 25 kilometers from me for blue-winged teal. I click on it, it says a 1,000 blue-winged teal, and there's a comment. I click on the report, I read the comment, it says many individuals in the golf course pond. Obviously, it says this in Spanish, I have to use a translator to see what it says, but I'm going, holy shit, I'm going to that golf course. It's only 25 kilometers away. And then I start looking at other historical reports for this golf course, because there's that's not the only dot that's on that golf course. And I find a report from 2014. And this one has a photo on it. It says 600 blue wing teal on the golf course. And there's a photo. I click on it, and there was not 600 blue wing teal on that golf course pond in 2014. There was more like probably 10,000. Like the entire pond was blackout with blue wing teal. I was like, holy shit, I got to get to this golf course. So we left the Airbnb on our last day. It was on the way home. I swung down to this. It was on a, uh, it was on a uh, all-inclusive resort. And this resort was like a prison facility. The entire thing had a, like a 12 foot tall, um, chain link fence that had vines growing up through it so you couldn't see in, barbed wire on the top, the whole works. I could not get into this golf course. I even drove in to a parking area and I had Raquel sweet talk the security guard like, hey, do you know where the pond is with all the ducks? And he's like, yeah. And we're like, can we go in there and take some pictures of it? And he said, absolutely not. So that kind of shut down what I thought would be my best chance of finding any American duck species there. But we didn't give up. We took a road trip to, uh, what is it, Boqueta? Boqueta, which is on the far western end of Panama. So basically, I drove from Panama City to Costa Rica, and I'm checking every pond along the way with binoculars, and I'm just not finding anything. Uh, my wife's from Agua Dulce District, so while I'm just chilling there, you know, we, we're just hanging out with family, relaxing, I'd jump in the car, and I'd go check out where somebody reported some blue-winged teal outside of town, you know, eight years ago. You know, like, who knows? Maybe I'll go down there with some binoculars and I'll find something. But was not the case. And I got, and then I'm, I'm looking for different species on eBird. And interestingly, I put in cinnamon teal into the eBird search. And there was almost zero sightings of cinnamon teal in Panama, which kind of blew my mind a little bit because I believe cinnamon teal both have a North American, um, not species, a uh, North American flock. I don't know, I'm searching for the right words here. And a South American flock. So there's, I think, and it, 
I'm drawn from memory here and I might be incorrect, but I believe that's the only species of duck that is has its own flocks or groups of birds, both in North America and South America. And so it kind of was surprising to me that there was so few of them spotted in Panama. Anyways, um, you would think, <laughs> I mean, if you got blue-winged teal coming from who knows where, you know, North and South Dakota, Minnesota, you know, birds that nest up there that are wintering in Panama on a golf course, um, you would think like some cinnamon teal would make it down there or conversely that some of the South American cinnamon teal would make it that far north for whatever that would be their breeding or non-breeding season. I have no idea. But anyways, that was uh, my waterfowl exploration in Panama. Oh, and I did go to the black belly heart of everything. Like last year when I was there in April of 2022, we went to this area called Las Macanas. And Las Macanas is just a wildlife reserve. And last year I saw an uncountable number of black-bellied whistling ducks in Las Macanas. Like they have a little observation dock and which is basically the sketchiest little dock that stretches out about, I don't know, 50 feet out into the into the lagoon. I go out there with binoculars and it was basically like black-bellied whistling ducks for as far as the eye could see. I, I say I saw 50,000 there, but who knows? And, to, and this year in January, I go there and I saw quite a few black bellies down there, but nothing like where I would even say I saw a thousand. And that being said, we we're talking about it, like me and uh, Raquel's dad. And he's like, yeah, it's summertime. You know, it's January there. He's like, yep, it's summer. There's very few, you know, ducks, geese, birds around in general in the summertime. And I found that to be true also just with casual bird watching around the house and uh, like just observing birds and wildlife that I saw just driving across the country. And I thought that was just pretty interesting that in summertime that it does not seem like, well, some quote unquote summertime, um, there really wasn't a lot of birds. Last year I saw a lot more ruddy ground doves um, than I saw, and more doves in general. I did see, for the first time, white, I don't know if they're called white-tipped doves or white-winged doves. I'm pretty sure it's white-tipped. I get confused on that sometimes. I mix them up. I saw a couple of those, and I saw a bunch of green parrots flying around that I really hadn't seen before. Other than that, like, even just driving around, the main roadkill you see, like, I don't know, you'd expect to see, like, maybe a little deer or something. I don't know. I don't know much about hooved animals, but the only roadkill you really see are dogs. And um, anyways, that was my trip to Panama. And uh, I figured uh, after I do a little uh, Panama recap, I do have some interesting articles I wanted to go through on my, uh, on my tabs. Let's do a little bit of keeping tabs. And uh, here's a couple interesting articles that I found and that have came across my radar here. If you don't know, I get all these interesting articles that I read through the Google Alerts system. So if you, in your Google, in your Gmail, in your Google account, you can set up Google Alerts. So I have, I think, 50 different phrases that I have in Google Alerts. And every morning at 5 o'clock in the morning, they send me a Google Alert Daily Digest, which basically just reads like a newspaper of or like a Google News of all the things that I search. So I'd have stuff in there like 
duck banding, goose banding, changes in waterfowl hunting regulations, all sorts of different stuff. Um, here's one article that popped up on my Google Alerts. Drought pushing geese migrations into urban areas. This is on ABC7 News out of Amarillo, Texas. Texas is a really interesting waterfowl um, a waterfowl region in that they've got a lot of interesting um, ecologies, a lot of different um, areas for ducks and geese. They got an enormous coastline. And this article deals with the cackling goose, the um, the mid-continent cackling geese that winter are mostly around the Amarillo and the Lubbock area. Now, that didn't always used to be the case for geese in Texas. Geese in Texas used to be snow geese along the coast. I think the city that was like the epicenter was like Bay City, Texas. And nowadays, the white geese have largely moved to the Mississippi, Mississippi Alluvial Valley and that's because of the degradation of habitat um, along the coastline, the expansions and of suburban areas into the coastal marshes, and the transfer of crops out of rice and into other crops. So the goose, the goose, um, terra, the, the goose ecology of Texas has changed from white geese on the coast to cackling geese in the cities. Um, and there's a lot of um, speculation about why that happens and now ABC7 News says drought is pushing geese into those areas. So with that background let's read a little bit. The Texas Panhandle serves as winter home for thousands of Canadian geese. Well it's not Canadian geese it's Canada geese and it's not Canada geese it's cackling geese through the winter and fall through the fall and winter months. Last week, Texas Park and Wildlife participated in an annual midwinter waterfowl survey of the Central Flyway, which includes the Panhandle. It's an important survey for us to get a sense of how much we are doing, how birds are doing, and the health of the population, says Kevin Cray, waterfowl program leader with the Texas Park and Wildlife. Cray says the geese are attracted here because of an abundance of playa wetlands and agricultural fields. However, due to the extended drought, there are fewer of both this year, so the geese are having to readjust. What happens in a year like this when it's really dry? These birds have have adapted to stay inside of the urban interface and take advantage of city parks and golf courses, in many cases in extremely abundant numbers. Cray added that the combination of drought and recent warm weather has also impacted the state's migration numbers. The organization's most recent survey counted about 200,000 Canadian geese, half the number that made it to Texas last year. Interesting. I did not know that. And I would be really curious as to what smarter people than me thought the reason before that or for that would be. Because the last like two or three years, the Texas Midwinter Survey has just shown these Canada geese, I'm sorry, cackling geese, just exploding in Texas, mostly around Amarillo and Lubbock. And um, I believe, I'm drawing from memory again here, but I believe that both Amarillo and Lubbock have both had about 200,000 each in the last couple midwinter surveys, which is just an enormous amount of cackling geese to live in a metro area. What's interesting about both Amarillo and Lubbock is they both are metro areas that have about 100,000 people in population. And they both kind of have like a freeway system with a, um, where the freeways like come into 
the cities, almost like a crosshair. Like the freeways come in from the east and west, north and south, but they also have a ring that surrounds the cities as well. So one thing I've always been curious about is, are we going to see more metropolitan areas that share these characteristics, you know, 100,000 people in population, almost this ring of freeways, like, which would <laughs> indicate they're safe, like, if they're inside that ring, they basically are safe, and then surrounded by agricultural areas. So I've looked into spots like Lawton, Oklahoma, and, but Lawton, Oklahoma, I think only has like 20,000 people, and it doesn't have that freeway system, and in general, just around the Playa Lakes region, those two cities are really standout. It's actually not a very highly populated area of the country, so they, those two areas just act as huge magnets for all the cackling geese in that area, and there's also, uh, just drawing off this there's also the Playa Lakes, um, the Playa Lakes Venture. All right, I'm gonna have to Google that right now. The Playa Lakes Venture, Playa Lakes Bert Joint Venture. That's what they're called. Playa Lakes Joint Venture which is a, our purpose is to find solutions to address habitat conservation challenges in the Western Great Plains so that birds and other wildlife, agricultural producers, blah, 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 blah. The Playa Lakes Joint Venture. That's a really good website to look at if you are interested in that Playa Lakes area of, of going there and like waterfall hunting. It's just got a bunch of really interesting stuff on there. And the, what's cool about Playa, the Playa Lakes region is it is like this almost wetland habitat in this desert area that almost is there is a lot of Playa Lakes down there. And I mean, it, it almost, it doesn't mimic. It's like a completely different wetland area than like where we are more familiar with, um, ah, damn, am I blanking on names today? Um, the wetland habitat that's in the prairie pothole region. God, I don't know what's going on with my brain today. The, um, so that is really, it's, it's a completely different wetland area, but it's, there is a lot of wetlands down there that is almost like ours up here. Anyways, let's jump back into that. And, uh, I think you guys get the idea, but I'm going to read a little bit more. Many of these birds will be in the Denver and Colorado Springs area. Okay. The years we get really cold for an extended period of time and the water up and down the front range of the Colorado River freezes, that's when we see our huge influx of birds here, Cry says, which is very interesting. I didn't know that they were seeing that many birds coming from the western side of Texas over to Texas from the Colorado front range. But you do see a lot of cackling geese in the front range. And I didn't know that when they get froze out, they go to the Lubbock Amarillo area. That's new for me. You can expect to see the geese here in the panhandle for another month before they head back to their breeding grounds in the north. Christ said there is more moisture and cold weather next year. You will see the birds back in the panhandle in strong numbers. And there's also a link here for the Midwinter Waterfowl Survey. I'm going to click on that, and it is just a link to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Division of Migratory Bird Management Midwinter Waterfowl Survey. Um, and these, this is an exciting time of year for me because I like to watch the Midwinter Waterfowl Surveys, and uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. And they're usually conducted around uh, Christmas to the 5th or 10th of January, and then the reports start coming out later in January, and um, 
Um, they're really fun to look at. This here, I don't think has. Let's just look at uh, Central Flyway. Let's click the link. Central Flyway, Dave Olson, phone number, email. But it doesn't have the 2022-2023 actual midwinter survey published, which I don't. It might be a little bit, might be a little bit too soon for that. Let's check out some other interesting tabs I got. And I've got some actual. Well, let's stay on the theme of the midwinter survey. This is on the North Dakota Game and Fish website, the North Dakota Midwinter Waterfowl Survey. Um, the North Dakota Game and Fish Department's annual midwinter waterfowl survey in early January indicated about 29,000 geese in the state. Now, immediately when I read that, I go, that's low. Um, Andy Dingus, Department of Migratory Game Biologist, said a low count was expected this year for wintering waterfowl given the substantial snowfall and cold temperatures in November and December leading up to the survey. We've had well above average snowfall already, especially in the central part of the state where most of our birds typically winter along the Missouri River system. Dinges said, much of this area has received over 50 inches of snow before the survey, which made access to waste grains difficult for birds and overall wintering conditions have been poor for waterfowl. In addition, Lake Sakakawea iced over on December 18th, which was one of the earliest dates for, for freeze up in recent years. In four of the last 10 years, the lower portion of Sakakawea has still had substantial open water in early January and needed to be completely surveyed by air. So does that mean they didn't survey it, survey it this year because it was froze over? It must mean that. I mean, why would you survey a frozen lake? I would imagine there might be still some geese just standing on ice. Okay. During the recent survey, an estimated 24,400 Canada geese were observed on the Missouri River and another 4,400 on Nelson Lake in Oliver County. Now, um, if you're familiar with the North Dakota Midwinter Waterfowl Survey, that's basically the only two areas that they survey, I think. I guess I'm not 100% sure. But that's where they find the majority of all of their waterfowl are on those two areas, the Missouri River system and Nelson Lake. Nelson Lake is just west of the Missouri River, and it has a ginormous power plant on there that keeps Nelson Lake open. So that will typically hold quite a few ducks and geese. So 24,000 of their geese were seen on the Missouri River and 4,400 on Nelson Lake. Dinger said that after summarizing the numbers, an additional 5,900 mallards were tallied statewide, most of which were recorded on Nelson Lake. The 10-year average for the midwinter waterfowl survey in North Dakota is 112,200 Canada geese and 16,500 mallards. So 10-year average is 112. It'd be interesting uh, to know what the high was on that, if the average is 112. But that... Um, that's super interesting to me because that's what, uh, let's see, they've got 29,000 geese and 10-year average, they normally have 112. So that's about 82,000 big honkers that are typically in North Dakota that are not right now. So they're definitely south, though I wonder if the guys in uh, just south of North Dakota, the Nebraska areas are having a, uh, or maybe South Dakota, had just a banner late season or how far south they actually made it out of North Dakota. 
So that's pretty, uh, another really interesting midwinter waterfowl survey out of North Dakota. So I would like to dig a little bit deeper, especially on that Texas one, and then get, get, uh, get more information on that. Now, Ducks Unlimited, um, the Ducks Unlimited podcast has had the midwinter waterfowl survey dude from Texas on their podcast the last two years. So they're doing the 2021 survey and the 2022 survey and talking about it with the Ducks Unlimited podcast host. Those are actually really interesting um, podcasts. If you want to go back and find them, I have no idea where they are in the Ducks Unlimited library catalog of all the podcasts they do. But those are very interesting, and I hope that they get that guy back on for this year to kind of explain this stuff. And another thing I'd like to check back up on is the Redheads in Texas, which last year uh, on that DU podcast, the dude was just like, there are so many Redheads here, it's insane. I'd like to know if that trend continued. I've got some good news about avian influenza, which... uh, if you've seen anything on social media about avian influenza, you know that this is the waterfowl apocalypse and that the feds are going to shut down all hunting within the next few weeks. Just kidding. But people do have that tendency to just be absolutely apocalyptic. And um, this is out of Iowa. And it basically is just an article saying that they're no longer allowing any... Um, Swap meets, auction markets, or exotic sales, or public meetups of bird shows. And, but, because they have just, I don't know if you've noticed the price of eggs. I paid like five and a half bucks for a dozen eggs. They are murdering chickens like fucking crazy in Iowa. But I did say this was good news. And the good news comes out of the wild bird population. At the moment, this is In quotes, at the moment, we have very little influenza activity in our wild birds, said Rachel Rudin, state wildlife veterinarian with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. Given this low prevalence and low to no morbidity or mortality in waterfowl, we are also not seeing the magnitude of spillover into our avian scavenger or raptor species. I've only received a handful of reports of sick or dead birds this fall. So throughout the entire season, and only some have tested positive. Right now, so that means out of all the dead birds that they've gone and collected, not all of them had died from um, avian influenza. In fact, she didn't use the word the majority or most or all. She said some of the ones, dead birds that people have found, had died from um, avian influenza. Right now, birds should be in fairly good nutritional status and less forced to congregate in large groups due to the amount of open water, she said, before the recent cold spell. So that's good um, because obviously if there's less open water, you're going to have birds congregating and that flu avian influenza spreading more rapidly. Of course, we do have many new, naive, young-of-the-year birds on the landscape as well, which may allow the disease to flare, but for now, Iowa remains quiet. So I shared that on my Snapchat, my social media, um, because it's good news. You know, maybe uh, I know a lot of places are having it worse than here, but here is just some good news. We can say, ah, well, at least Iowa doesn't have much of a problem with it. I got an article also from Audubon.com. It's called Seeing the Geese in Chevron Flight by Carrie Gray. And this is just a story, I already read this, um, where Carrie goes up to the Hudson Bay 
where she um, banded a bunch of Canada geese with um, on the along the Ontario coastline of James Bay. I said Hudson Bay. I'm sorry. I meant James Bay. James Bay, Ontario is absolutely goose banding mecca. She goes up to Moosonee, which I actually do have a goose band from Moosonee that I shot um, with my buddy Adam Smith. Shout out to Adam. Um, hunting in Michigan, around Midland, Michigan, I shot a Moosonee band. And my buddy Joe Heinz has a Moosonee band that he got while hunting with uh, Big Al in Ohio. So those James Bay birds coming down along the east side of the Great Lakes, and both me and Joe have caught ourselves a Moosonee band. But I thought there was one kind of standout. They got some cool pictures of them rounding up geese into pens on the tundra. And she says you got to watch out for bears and blah, blah, blah. But... Rod, here's here's what I wanted to, to say on the podcast. Nevertheless, Rod's crew and a second crew on the Hudson Bay coast banned an average of six to 7,000 Canada geese over the course of three weeks each year. That is true. Um, I have looked up the numbers on the USGS website. Ontario bans by far the most Canada geese out of any um, province or state. I mean, by far, they are getting like eight, 9,000 bands on Canada geese every year. And six to 7,000 of those are coming from the James Bay lowlands, which is just absolutely insane. How many geese they are banding up there. Um, if you want to compare numbers like, oh, okay, well, Ontario gets eight, nine, 10,000 Goose bands on every year. What does uh, Minnesota get? Wisconsin, Iowa. They get about 4,000 each every year. So, and those are on the high end. Like if a state is getting 4,000 Canada goose bands on geese per year, that is, that is a lot of goose bands. Well, Ontario's more than doubling it and they're doing it every year. A lot of the states that get 4,000 goose bands some year some years uh, don't on other years. If you want to look up all sorts of super awesome, interesting band information, and like, how do I know that all the that four thousand geese get banded in um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa? How do I know that? If you go to the U.S. Google this USGS summaries of banding and encounter data. Just Google that. It'll take you right to this page where you click in your species, pick in your click in your country, and click in your state. You don't even have to click in your state. You can get all the numbers for every country, for every state, for every province, on every bird that's banded. It's not just waterfowl. It is all birds. And you can see, like, if you live in uh, North Dakota, how many blue-winged teal did they band here every year going back to the 60s? If you are interested in Canada geese, here's a tip. There are two species of Canada geese that you need to look up their, um, their, their band data. You need to look up Canada goose and you need to look up large Canada geese. Now, anybody in the James Bay, that should be under the, under the uh, Canada goose. And if you look up any geese that are in the lower 48, that should be large Canada goose. But that does the biologists don't always follow that. Like sometimes you get guys... In Minnesota or South Dakota or North Dakota, wherever, the biologists, they put Canada geese when they should have put large Canada goose. It's kind of confusing that they have Canada goose 
and large Canada goose because those aren't two separate species. Canada geese and large Canada geese both are under the Canada goose species. And then for cackling geese, they put that under Canada goose as well, except they have another another uh, species for just the Aleutian Canada goose. So you won't find cackling goose banding numbers. Those will fall under Canada goose. And then except for the Aleutians, which will find, yeah, it's weird. Anyways, if you're trying to find Canada goose numbers, be sure like if you just, if you live in Wisconsin and you want to see how many geese they banded over whatever, look up Canada goose, then look up large Canada geese, add those two numbers together. That's what you're going to have. Just in case some guys banding put Canada goose, some guys banding put large Canada goose. Sometimes you click on Canada goose and the guys are doing it right in the lower 48 and they all used large Canada geese. So sometimes it can be confusing for people. They'll look it up and they'll be like, what? It says they didn't band any. Well, no, you got to check the other one too. Little side note. Anyways, that is that article. Um, Let's see what else I got here. When migrating birds go astray, disturbances in magnetic field may be partly to blame. This is by the UCLA Newsroom Science and Technology. I have not read this one. It says, when migrating birds go astray, disturbances in magnetic field may be partly to blame. It seems logical enough that bad weather can sometimes cause birds to become disoriented during their annual fall migrations, causing them to wind up in territory they're unaccustomed to. But why? Even when weather is not a major factor, do birds travel far away from their usual routes? A new paper by UCLA ecologist explores one reason. Disturbances to Earth's magnetic field can lead birds astray, a phenomenon scientists call vagrancy. Even in perfect weather, and especially during fall migration, the research is published in scientific reports. And they have a link if you're interested in looking this up. With North America's bird population steadily declining, assessing the causes of vagrancy can could help scientists better understand the threats birds face and the way they adapt to those threats. For example... Blah, blah, blah. Anyways, Earth's magnetic field, which runs between the North and South Poles, is generated by several factors, both above and below the planet's surface. Decades worth of lab research suggests that birds can sense magnetic fields using magnetoreceptors in their eyes. The new UCLA study leads lends support to those findings from an ecological perspective. There's increasing evidence that birds can actually see geomagnetic fields, says Morgan Tingley, the paper's corresponding author and UCLA Associate Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. In familiar areas, birds may navigate by geography, but in some situations, it's easier to use geomagnetism. That is pretty fucking cool. And it just gets your head spinning. Like, okay... So they can see Earth's magnetic fields, but how do they go back to the exact same pond in fucking northern Canada to the, put their nest in the exact same spot every single year? It just goes to show how little we know about bird migration and how they do it and how fascinating it really is. Let's see what else I got in here. Hunting waterfall from a boat in Wyoming. Tips for this unique experience on wide open spaces. 
you know, hey, if you're interested in hunting uh, Wyoming uh, from a boat, there's an article out there for you, and it's on WideOpenSpaces.com. Give that a look. Let's see what else I got in here. I have a research paper. The new evidence of fossil lesser white-fronted goose in the late Pleistocene sediments of the Benagada Asphalt Lake, Azerbaijan. Very interesting, uh, I guess, if you're interested in fossil records of lesser white-fronted geese. If you don't know the story of lesser white-fronted geese, that is actually something very interesting to look up. If you are familiar with speckle bellies, you might know them by their real names, the greater white-fronted goose. Well, there is a lesser white-fronted goose, and it's over in Europe, and it is one of the most threatened waterfowl species on planet Earth. They are the exact same thing that you see here in the United States. They are speckle bellies, but they are tiny. They are tiny, 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 tiny. They are like cackling cackler size, but a, but a speckle belly. And they are cute little motherfuckers. But they are one of the most threatened goose species on planet Earth. And apparently, they found some fossil records of them in Azerbaijan. That's a fun thing to look up if you're ever interested in learning more about those cute little guys. And I don't believe you can shoot those things anywhere. Next article. We could not locate it. Well, anyways, I've got new seasons coming to Louisiana. I got an article, uh, proposed seasons add new twist for duck hunters. This is out of Louisiana. And this caught my attention because it says that they are changing their opener for early teal season. And it says, for teal hunters who asked for later dates for the special September season, the LDWF's waterfall study group locked onto the federally mandated September 30th close, then counted back the 16 days allowed for this season and wound up with a Friday, September 15th opener. Which, um, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Um, if you've never, if you're a diehard duck hunter, and this needs to be on your bucket list. You need to go down to Louisiana and do early teal season. It is awesome. I got to experience it once. It's something you don't like see a lot of like, you know, TV shows on or you don't hear, well, especially living in the, the Midwest, you don't hear a lot of people talking about how they've done it or how they've experienced it, but it is fun, guys. It is really, really fun. Um, it's a short season, so there's just not a lot of publicity about it. And, you know, you don't see a lot of YouTube videos on it or anything like that. But it's definitely, a, it should be on your bucket list of bucket lists to go do this. When I hunted, uh, I've done it one day. I hunted down there, and that was September 13th of 2020, I want to say. I won the lottery for the White Lake Conservation Area Lottery Teal Hunt. And uh, I would highly, highly recommend that. Anyways, they're going to have a September 15th opener, which, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. It's also uh, interesting to see that uh, for teal, it says for teal hunters who asked for later dates. Also, this goes back to the importance of filling out all the surveys. Anything the government asks you to do for them to help them improve hunting, please do it. Um, I've been asked several times by several organizations to do surveys. You know, I always do my surveys for uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin. I just 
filled out one for North Dakota actually and sent it back because I had bought their early goose season license. And they sent me a survey of how many birds I shot and where, any suggestions, I wrote down what I thought. I actually wrote down, <laughs> I wrote down, seems like you guys are doing a good job culling that local population of geese. It keeps getting harder to find them and kill them out here in August. Um, I sent that back to them. I mean, it, it, it all goes into their database. Um, and here you got an example of that as well, where they changed the teal hunting dates in Louisiana because that's what people wanted. Let's see what else I got. I had a one from New Hampshire. I had one from New Hampshire that was talking about how many ducks they banned in New Hampshire. Not many, but like an article like that can start to direct a guy to like, well, if I were to do something crazy, and a lot of these like articles about banding uh, tells you where they've been banding them. <laughs> I got another research paper. Reason for the reduction in the population of Western subspecies of the bean goose. Let's skip that one, huh? Let's see how long we've been going. 38 minutes, that's plenty, guys. That's plenty. I was going to get into a little bit of... Maybe I can do this with Dale next week or something, but I would really like to get into small decoy spreads because it's something everybody is super interested in. Like, what if I just go with the small realistic spread? And I've been doing it for four years now. I haven't read... I have not ran more than like six and a half dozen full body goose decoys for the last four years. So I've got the ups, the downs, the pros, the cons. I'd like to do a little bit of a detailed podcast on that, maybe next time. But I knew I just had a bunch of interesting articles here today. Anyways, thank you guys very much for listening. Please check out Boss Ammunition and we will catch you on the next podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Appreciate you guys. game in wild places tune in to hunt stand presents saturdays at 8 30 p.m eastern waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment a life that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.